Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. Hear God's word to us. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Christ Community's downtown campus. Uh, my name is Tyler, I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so glad uh, that you've joined us this Sunday. I'm really excited to dive into what we'll be studying for the next few minutes together because I believe that today we're going to be evaluating a phenomenon that has taken over our culture and radically reshaped the way that we live in and engage with the world. Uh, I think we're going to be exploring more thoughtfully and more carefully a pattern of behavior that many of us, uh, if not all of us, have embraced largely without question. We're going to be assessing a way of interacting with and in the world that has come to be so commonplace uh, so everyday, so natural and normal, even though I'd argue it can yield disastrous consequences. Uh, so what is it? What is it that we're going to be talking about today? Well, church, this morning we're going to press pause and take a closer look at multitasking, right? Multitasking. Perhaps you've done it this week. Uh, you've been maybe on the phone while you're on your computer, while you're writing your grocery list, while you're driving your car, right? Or you've been uh, replying to a text while replying to an email, while listening to a voicemail. You've been ordering something on Amazon while making a Spotify playlist, while updating your billing information in Netflix, right? You've had three conversations at dinner, uh, one on your phone, one with the person across from you, and one with Alexa. Uh, multitasking <laughs> is everywhere in our world, and it feels inescapable. And I know that many times I feel like my attention is so divided, even when I'm at work. I don't know about you all, but I'm one of those like tab browser people. Do you have the multiple tabs open? I often have maybe eight or nine tabs open at once. I know I need some work in this area. Uh, but multitasking, it is all around us, and the fact is that it's hurting us. Uh, multitasking has a very real cost. Indeed, experts are now saying uh, that multitasking is actually a myth. Have you heard it? They said that multitasking, it can't actually be done. Even though we tell ourselves that we're able to do multiple things at once, that we're multiplying our productivity by engaging in this and this and this and this simultaneously, uh, they say what's actually happening is that we're wasting energy and wasting time as we switch between these unrelated tasks. More and more research is showing that uh, you cannot do two cognitive things at the same time. It's just impossible. The mind doesn't work that way. And so that explains why productivity in some offices is going down even as the hours people are spending there are increasing. It explains why today's students perform more poorly on memory-based tests, because oftentimes there's kind of some multitasking they're doing while they're studying, right? It also explains why car insurance rates have increased. 
because too many individuals who think they're great at multitasking keep getting into accidents while they text and drive, right? You know this. Did you know that the National Transportation Safety Board reports that texting while driving is the equivalent of driving with a blood alcohol level three times the legal limit? Again, this proves our brains simply cannot handle so much disconnected information at once. Uh, cell phone use, some more examples. It, it, it leads to 1.6 million crashes per year. Nearly 330,000 injuries occur each year from accidents caused by texting while driving. Nearly one out of four car accidents in the U.S. is caused by texting and driving. Now, church, I know I'm probably not the first one to tell you about the dangers of texting and driving, and perhaps you've read that multitasking is a myth already, right? These kinds of ideas are beginning to swirl around in our culture. So you know the dangers of distracted driving, but this morning I want us to think about the dangers of distracted living. What about the dangers of distracted living? What is the cost of a multitasking way of life, of splitting our attention between so many different things and objectives and goals and devices and tasks? What does that distracted way of living do to our relationships, right? to our happiness, um, to our spiritual well-being and growth? A few minutes ago, I said I was really excited to dive into what we'll be exploring during these next few moments, and I am, and the reason I'm excited is because I'm convinced that our distracted state of existence, our fragmented patterns of engaging with the world, our habit of constantly switching from one thing to the next without the ability to sit still and focus on what's at hand, I think that's done great damage to our ability to be still and alone and intimate with the people in our lives that matter most and with Jesus. Simply put, I would argue that distracted living is the greatest threat to our Christian faithfulness and fruitfulness. I mean, to put an even finer point on it, I know that many of us in this church, just because of my role, I get to talk to a whole lot of you. I know many of us in this church aren't necessarily actively rejecting Jesus. There aren't too many folks in this church that are saying, hey, you know what, Jesus, I'm not really interested. Could you just go away? Right? And it's not something that we have a lot in this church, but I know there are many in this church who would say, gosh, I honestly feel like I might be a little too distracted for Jesus, that I don't have the time or attention to give him. We find ourselves short on focus, right? Unable to concentrate in times of prayer or reflection. We find that we never have space to pause and listen to God. And so today, I believe that Jesus wants to challenge the way that so many of us have been living. I believe he wants to present to us, honestly, another way, a better way of living, as he always does, that pushes us towards life that's more full and that brings us more flourishing. So I'm really interested in what we're going to be discussing today. Are you? Uh, if so, would you join me in Luke chapter 12? It's on page 871 of our community Bibles, Luke chapter 12. And while you're turning there, let me remind you of where we've been. So we began 2018 with this new series called Simply Different. And we said there's some ways of living, some patterns of behavior that should be simply different in the lives of those that follow Jesus. And so we launched our sermon series on January 7th with Gabriel. He talked about how our time should look different, right? Simply different time, the way we spend our time. And then last week, we learned more and thought about our resources, the way that those who follow Jesus use their resources and their finances and what they have access to and their privilege. That should be uh, something that Christians use differently. So that's where we've been. And now we're turning our attention to attention, and we're going to say that the way that those who follow Jesus use their attention should be simply different. And we're doing that because of what Jesus teaches here in Luke chapter 12. Now, Luke 12 is a chapter, it's a collection of many of Jesus' teaching. Luke, who wrote this gospel, 
uh, was a doctor, this is an educated person. And so he wanted to meticulously record and capture what Jesus said while he was on this earth. And so he was careful in collecting Jesus's teaching. And here in Luke 12, we find one of these chapters where there's just teaching from Jesus after teaching from Jesus, right? They all appear in a row. And many of these teachings appear in a form of a parable, which is like this story or an illustration that's used to make a deep spiritual point. And so in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus is launching into one of these parables. He's opening up another in a series of teaching, opening up another story to his disciples that he hopes to use to make an point that he wants to use to inspire and instruct them. And so Luke chapter 12, 35, one of these stories begin, and let's read it together now. Jesus says, stay dressed and ready for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So Jesus, he opens this story by like kind of giving away the main point, giving away the thesis, right? He says, stay alert, stay vigilant, stay prepared, be dressed and ready for action. And then he wants to explain a little bit more what he means. And so he starts to paint this story. He's painting a word picture. He says, you know what? You should be like servants who are waiting for their master to come back to the private quarters after a great feast. He invites those who will follow him to imagine a little bit with them. He invites them to consider, he's like, okay, think about what these kinds of servants, these servants that are staying up for their master, think about what they would be like. And Jesus gives a couple details. First, he says, hey, these kinds of disciples, uh, they would be, or these kind of servants would be people who had stayed dressed, right? They're people that haven't taken off their uniforms and kind of slipped into their slipper and robes after a long day. You know, the apron is still on, the uniform is still buttoned up. He said they've stayed dressed, right? And he says they've also, they've kept the lights on, which was something that took extra work in the first century. It means you had to do some work of gathering extra oil and making sure that this light wouldn't go out in the middle of the night. It took a little forethought to gather the supplies you would need if you were going to keep the light on for someone up late. And so Jesus is saying, imagine that you're like these servants who are staying up waiting for their master's return. Uh, they've done some work. They've taken some extra effort. They've stayed dressed. They're doing the action that it takes to keep the lights on. Jesus says, hey, you need to be like those servants. You need to be attentive. Now, Jesus knows what we know. What we know. Being attentive is hard work. I mean, it does not come naturally. It's really not second nature to anyone. And I think that's why Jesus gives his disciples this illustration of staying up late. Because staying up late when you're a grown-up is hard work. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I used to be up, and this is true, I used to be up to like one or two every morning. Uh, I mean, I think about kind of my college house and roommates and literally, I mean, things would begin to be happening around 10 p.m. You know, you're just now calling the pizza place. Folks are coming over. They did delivery in Bloomington, Indiana. This is true at Pizza X until 4 a.m. You could have pizza delivered to your home. And so it used to be, I gosh, super easy to stay up late. I was seeing, you know, one, two every morning. Uh, church, it is not so easy anymore. I mean, maybe I can make it for a special occasion, but some of you I know in this room have been at my house and you've seen me sitting in that black chair with the ottoman, right, as my eyes start to drift and a yawn comes out. 
and I'm trying so hard to stay focused there, but that's usually when you're like, okay, I'm just gonna let you go, Tyler. Uh, attention, it takes effort, it takes work. Resisting distraction takes effort, right? Resisting fatigue takes effort. Resisting boredom takes effort. Attention takes effort, and it took effort in the first century to avoid distraction. There were distractions that they faced in their life, and it takes effort today, and Jesus knows this. He knew that it would take effort to avoid distraction, and you know this. I mean, in our smartphone age where the entire internet can fit in the palm of your hand, in our world of never-ceasing media where you can go to a restaurant and find a TV on every wall, in the era of Netflix, where one show plays after the next show and after the next show. In the world of video games, where there's always another level to beat. In the world of kind of big sporting events, right? Kind of professional sports, where there's always the next tournament, right? And there's always the next season. You know, when football's done, we move on to the next. In our social media world, where there's never-ending posts to like or comment or share, or sometimes block, right? Being attentive, it's hard work takes effort. It took effort in the first century, and it takes effort today. And Jesus knew this, and so he instructed his disciples to stay alert, and he painted a picture for what staying alert looks like. He said, hey, it's going to take some work. It means you're, you're staying dressed. You're gathering oil for that lamp. You're putting in the effort of attention. It won't be easy, Jesus says. But then like any good coach who's asking people to do something difficult, uh, he offers his disciples some motivation, so Jesus invites them to this very difficult task of staying attentive, but then he gives some motivation. He gives a reason for doing this difficult work, and we see that in verse 27. So let's turn there. Jesus continues his teaching, and he says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service, and he will watch them recline at the table, and he will come and he will serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. See here, Jesus draws his disciples deeper into the story. He says, hey, so remember, we're imagining those servants, those servants that are staying awake, those servants that are staying dressed, that have lit the lamp, that are attentive to their master. He says, imagine those ones when they finally hear their master's knock at the door. When their master finally comes back from the great feast, truly, Jesus says, when he returns, those servants will be so glad that they stayed up because they will be served by the master himself. This is a twist ending in Jesus' story. This is like a total surprise. Attention takes effort, Jesus starts with. We all know that. It's going to take some work to stay awake. But if you do, you're going to experience something that's absolutely phenomenal. The master is going to serve the servants. Now, this is remarkable today, and it would have been even more remarkable back then because in the first century, hierarchy is something that was not often disregarded. And so for a master to serve a servant would have been just absolutely crazy. It would have been something that never happens, like maybe a, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime type thing where you just happen to see this total inversion of roles and status. This would have been truly remarkable. You know, I was thinking this week uh, about this text, and it got me thinking about those like one-night-only events. Do you ever see this? and like kind of promotion for live theater or something. They're like, for one night only, you know, which is kind of code for, you know, this is something special. This is something worthy of your attention. One night only, right? Uh, 
got me thinking about a, a one-night-only event that took place on September 24th, 2001. Uh, in my opinion, this was one of the greatest one-night-only events in the history of musical theater. It happened at the Ford Center in New York City for one night only. Tony Winters, Heather Headley, Audra McDonald, and Lilius White were together for a performance of Dreamgirls, one night only. Now, what you need to know, friends, is between these three ladies, there are eight Tony Awards. This is Broadway royalty right here, and some magic booking agent was able to get them on one stage again for one night only. The show started 30 minutes late because we're dealing with some divas, but everyone who was there said it was absolutely phenomenal, that they just sang their heads off, that it was something that like, we could have never imagined missing. How did we happen to be so fortunate to have a seat in this theater? Now, church, if I had access to a time machine, I know the proper church answer is to say that I would go back to the first century so that I could meet Jesus. <laughs> but along the way, I would stop at New York City on September 24, 2001, because this show is absolutely incredible. And unfortunately, it took place before there's good like cell phone camera. There is only grainy video that exists on YouTube, right? This was a one night only event. This would be, being at this event for me would be like having, you know, ringside tickets to Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier in 1975, right? greatest boxing match in history. It'd be like having tickets to the 1980 Olympics where the US beat the Soviet Union, right? Kind of the hockey dream team, right? There are certain events, aren't there, that stand apart, that only happen once in a lifetime. And if you're there, you always remember it. And if you miss it, you're sorry that you did. And Jesus says that this kind of event, a one-night-only kind of event where the master serves his servants, is what awaits those who are able to resist distraction and focus on what matters most. Jesus says this kind of event, something that's, that's absolutely legendary that you never see but only once in your life, he says this is what awaits those who are able to resist distraction and do the hard work of being attentive. Specifically, Jesus says that those who rightly direct their attention uh, will be blessed. They'll be rewarded. They're going to experience some joy. They're going to have this unique experience that feels uh, immensely rewarding to them because their attention is focused in the right direction, Jesus teaches they're going to get a front row seat to the surprise of the century. They're going to be there to experience the master inverting roles and serving them. And do you see now why I opened our time together by suggesting that distracted living is perhaps the greatest threat to our Christian faithfulness and fruitfulness? Are you beginning to be able to see now why I think that we all need to reconsider those habits and patterns that we get into with devices or in our relationships with other people as it relates to being distracted? Do you see why I think that distraction is such a big deal? It's because I believe our distraction can cause us to miss the master. I mean, our distraction, it can cause us to miss the master. It can keep us from appreciating the many ways that God wants to show us his care and love and kindness in our everyday life. Because we're so distracted, because our attention is so fragmented, because we're moving from one notification to the next, from one half conversation to the next, from one kind of text interaction, interrupted by an email interaction, interrupted by a phone call, interrupted by a TV show, because we move and have our attention consumed by so many different things, I think we miss the times that God wants to encourage us, wants to care for us, wants to send a person our way who's going to say a word we need to hear, wants to put an idea in our head that inspires us, or wants to put something on our heart where we might help someone else and it'll bless them and bless us in the process. I think we miss those things because we are so 
distracted. And distracted living, church, like distracted driving, I think it's incredibly dangerous. It can cause us to miss the master. And so what do we do? What do we do if we're sitting here this morning and we're like, oh my gosh, Tyler, I am so distracted. Oh my gosh, my focus goes in so many different directions. Oh goodness, I am pulled and tugged in so many, so many different ways throughout the day that it's hard for me to focus and find stillness and be at peace and be fully present where I am. What do we do? Well, in the moments that remain, I want to suggest some practical steps we can take to rid our lives of distraction and to more consciously select and direct the focus of our attention. So just a few practical steps. This is not comprehensive, but it's just a few ideas that have meant a lot to me. Uh, First, I think we all need to put distraction in its place. We need to put distraction in its place, which is to say, hey, we need to be a little more mindful. We need to be a little more self-aware. We need to be a little more self-examining. Because so often we can allow ourselves to become distracted without even realizing it. You know, opening up Facebook is sort of a mindless activity. Opening up our favorite news app is something that we do without thinking. We tell ourselves we're just going to watch one episode and then four hours have passed, right? It's so easy for us to be distracted, isn't it? And so first we need to put distraction in its place. I mean, we need to be self-aware about what it is that distracts us. And then we need to say, hey, you're going to have access to these minutes of my day, but not these minutes. You're going to have access to this part of my life, but not that part. I'm going to allow you to exist in this area of my routine, but actually this is going to be off limits to you, whatever that distraction is, right? I mean, for many of us, I think this could mean performing a smartphone audit. Have you heard about these, the thing called a smartphone audit? So it's where you keep track both of the time you spend on your phone and also what apps you're on while you're on your phone. And actually, I mean, kind of in the ultimate twist of irony, there are apps that will help you do this audit. Uh, so you can find those. They're out there, right? Uh, but a smartphone audit, have you, have you heard of that? Have you thought about that? And do you need to do one? I mean, is there something on your phone that just pulls you in? How much time each day do you think you spend on your phone? And what is it that grabs your attention there? You know, is it Instagram. And again, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with Instagram, but this is just about carving out time for what matters most. Is it Instagram? Is it, you know, Snapchat? Is it uh, words with friends? You know, what kind of distracts you? What pulls you in on that phone? And if you would be here and you'd say, gosh, I think I have a little bit of an issue with my phone. Uh, Here's another practical suggestion. Maybe you need a place in your home where your phone lives. So brought a prop here today. This is from my house, uh, from the Cherneski collection at Target. This is the tray uh, where my phone, wallet, and keys live every time I come back to the apartment, right? So this is the tray. As soon as I walk in the door, you know, it's like boom, 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 kind of lay all the stuff in the tray, and that's where it sits in my house. Now, on my best days, I remember to turn, like, the ringer back on on my phone so that I'll hear certain alerts from certain folks if it's there. On my worst days, it just stays off, and I literally don't look at it till the next morning, which is why some of you have had unreturned texts from me uh, before. But I'll tell you this, church, this started as a way uh, for me not to lose those things that really matter. Because I don't know if you remember last year, but I lost my wallet for 72 hours, and that was a whole thing. So I'm like, I'm going to get this tray. It started as a way to keep track of things. But the blessing I've discovered along the way is that putting those things in that tray when I come home allows my house to be a place of peace. 
allows my house to be a place of rest, allows my house to be a place of relationship and connection and wholeness and slowness. That's what happens in the apartment, right? And maybe you need a place where your phone lives. And even, I mean, if you don't want to be as careless as me, right, even if it's just for a few hours of the day where I'm not within, you know, touching distance or walking distance of my phone, but there's some peace, there's some time that's carved out, there's some sacred space in this house, in my routine, where I can rest. Is that something that you need to cut distraction out of your life? It's a really, really helpful, helpful habit that perhaps could be a benefit to you. Another thing under this, this banner of putting distraction in its place, maybe one more thing that's worth considering. How do you spend the first few moments of the day and the last few moments of your day? Because what's true is that researchers have said that those moments are absolutely critical to either shaping how our day takes off, right, the whole trajectory of our day, or kind of how we summarize everything that's happened. And for so many of us, I'm afraid those moments are filled with things that are distracting. You know, do you wake up and log into email? And I say that as one who've done, who's done that probably twice this week, right? Is that how you're spending the first few minutes of your day? And what about those final few minutes? Is it, you know, just kind of one more game, one more, you know, level on, I think Candy Crush is old now, but I am so behind on the trends. You know, one more level on Candy Crush before bed, whatever it is. What gets those first few moments and those final few moments? Those moments are critical and they're worth protecting. And I think it's worth starting your day and ending your day with God. I think it's worth starting your day and ending your day, be it with you know, prayer or reading your Bible or journaling or reflecting on what happens or dreaming about what could be or writing things down, setting goals and praying about them, all those things. I think that's a much better way to start or end our day, right? Don't let distraction creep into those critical moments, right? We have got to put distraction in its place. So that's the first thing, a few practical ideas. A second, here's another suggestion, uh, get alone and get quiet. Get alone and get quiet. Think of this as kind of like a spiritual detox. Uh, Because in a world that is so saturated by distraction, I think it's critical that we get alone and get quiet. In fact, this is something that Jesus modeled for us. At multiple points throughout his earthly ministry, even as people were begging him for more advice, more instruction, more healing, Jesus retreated and took time to get alone and get quiet. It's a spiritual discipline we've come to call solitude. And solitude, it takes practice. It's another thing that's not second nature to anyone. But there's something magical that happens in solitude, something spiritual and significant as we learn to be peaceful and quiet and contemplative and restful with our own thoughts. In fact, our our ability to pray, our ability to think, our ability to focus, our ability to care for others, I think, increases after we spend time in solitude. And solitude, as we've said about all the spiritual disciplines, it's one of those things that grow with use. It's like a muscle, right? The more you flex it, the stronger it gets. And so it might not be second nature to any of us, but we've got to give it a shot. We have to try it somehow. So what would it look like for you to take the first step towards becoming better at solitude? And I'm going to be honest here, it'll look different for each of us, right? Because solitude looks different depending on your life circumstances. Some of us might be able to take a full day away for like kind of a personal retreat where we, you know, journal and reflect and set some goals, which is wonderful. Um, Others of us might have, you know, new kids at home uh, or new jobs or new tasks that require our attention. And so maybe solitude is just grabbing, you know, a few moments while they're still sleeping or grabbing just an hour on a coveted weekend morning that's kind of peaceful and quiet, right? 
I mean, hear me clearly, solitude can look so different for each of us. It's not requiring a certain kind of length or a certain kind of, you know, oh, they were able to do eight hours, so they have better solitude. It's not that at all. What I'm inviting us to today is considered, what could it look like for me to get away, to get alone, and to get quiet? It is so good for us, friends. Again, it's a discipline that Jesus embraced and modeled. It allows us to recalibrate our hearts and refocus our attention. What could you do to get alone and get quiet? What might that look like for you in light of your current life circumstances and commitments? And finally, finally, maybe after you've had that time away, I think another step we all need to take uh, is have a conversation. And by this, I mean have a real conversation. Because sadly, what's true is that in our distracted world, so many of us have traded real intimacy and friendship for artificial connection and proximity. I mean, one thing that's true, researchers that live in this world of technology and distraction and kind of cultural analysis say that never before have so many said, I feel so connected and yet so alone. Right? I feel like I have so much contact with other people, uh, even as I feel like no one really knows me on the deepest level. I mean, researchers would say that's an epidemic in our age. In fact, second piece of show and tell, uh, author Sherry Turkle, who wrote this book, Reclaiming Conversation, right, that exists here in paper, uh, she says that the only antidote for the distance and loneliness that so many experience in our digital age is what she calls the talking cure, face-to-face interaction, uninterrupted physical community. I mean, quite transparently, this is why we take time in our services to do that little stand and greet for five minutes. Now know this, we know that that's just an appetizer, right? That shouldn't be anyone's complete meal of human interaction uh, throughout the week. It's not enough, but in another sense, we know that in our world, conversation is at risk. Connecting with other people isn't something that happens. And so we want to do our small part as a church to make sure that it's not something that we lose. So we make it a part of our worship services every week. If you say, gosh, I can't remember the last time I had a real conversation where I wasn't either on a phone or distracted by this, where I was just face-to-face with a person, uh, here's a few ideas. Maybe you need to join one of our community groups. And this kind of conversation is what we're hoping to foster there. We want people to get better at connecting and relating and talking about what matters most. Or maybe uh, you need to invite someone that you've chatted with at church or that you've met at work to lunch or dinner or coffee and just say, hey, we're not going to get on our phones during this time. We're just going to connect. We're going to engage in conversation. Because I think Sherry Turkle is right. Conversation heals. There's a talking cure. There's something about being physically present with someone that takes us out of this world of distraction and busyness and, you know, beep, 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 boom, boom, everything demanding my attention and says, no, I'm focused here and I'm retraining my mind to focus on what's really important, the people in front of me. And while you're out there having those conversations, perhaps I could also encourage you to make time for the most healing kind of conversation that exists, uh, a conversation with God in prayer, right? Turn your conversational attention to God. Talk to him and listen to him. You want to experience healing conversation, yes, you know, talk with people in this church, yes, join a community group, but talk to God in prayer and allow that to recalibrate your heart that to reorient your priorities, that to focus your attention again on what ultimately matters. 
Here's why I think that that conversation with God is so healing. Here's what I think is so important as we wrap up our time together. We got to go back and remember the turning point of Jesus's parable. We got to remember kind of the one detail, the crux of this illustrative teaching that kind of everything swirls around because I think this is so inspiring here at the end. I mean, so far this morning, we've been spending a lot of our time thinking about this parable and wondering, man, how do we be more like those servants, right? How do we get better at staying watchful, staying alert? Uh, What would that look like for us practically? And I think that's been a really good use of our time because, again, in the parable that's being told, uh, we hold that servant role. Jesus is telling us to be like the servants. And so it's worth it to explore all these things, whether it's, you know, putting distraction in its place or having conversations or being quiet and alone. I mean, these things are good. We should be thinking through these steps. But let's not miss another point that this parable is making. Let's not gloss over what this parable is suggesting about the master, because again, I think this is absolutely astounding in the first century or any century. Jesus paints a picture of a master who leaves a party to come back and serve his servants. I mean, imagine that, this master walking out of the party with a tray of hors d'oeuvres, you know, thinking about his servants, so excited for them to open the door and be surprised. I mean, imagine the delight as the servants open the door and find that what's ahead of them isn't more work, but it's actually this this ridiculous one-night-only experience where the master is going to serve them. Jesus' story suggests that even at a grand party, this good master was thinking of his servants. Thinking of his servants. I think that means, church, that as distracted as we might be, God never stops paying attention to us. And as distracted as we might be, as distracted as we might become, God never stops paying attention for us. He never stops seeing what we need. He never stops noticing how we're feeling. He never stops recognizing where we need to be challenged a little bit and where we need to be encouraged. And I think this is precisely what Jesus is saying a little earlier in this chapter of Luke 12, because he says a few verses up from what we've been studying today, he says, hey, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. Of How much more value are you than the birds? His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me, is what the old hymn says. And Jesus goes on, he says, and consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, right, wealthy king, in all his glory, was not dressed like one of these. So if God so clothes the grass, which is alive today and gone tomorrow, and then kind of thrown into the burning pile to be burned up, how much more will he clothe and care for you? I think Jesus is saying here to us from Luke 12 that the direction of our attention matters because when we regain control of our attention, when we're able to resist distraction, when we're able to consciously focus on what matters most, we find ourselves able to be attentive to the one who's always attentive to us. We're finally able, when all the noise ceases and all the distraction goes away, to be attentive to the one who is always attentive to us who that even while we've been pretending that we're great multitaskers has been looking into our hearts and considering how he might make us more like him, who even when we've been too distracted to notice him has been mindful of us. And church, I think if we could just pause and let that sink in, 
If we could just focus our attention on that truth, I think we would find ourselves blown away by God's love and kindness and devotion. Be honest with yourself here. When was the last time you reflected on the fact that God thinks about you? When was the last time that you realized that God is thinking just as you are about what it is that you need? When was the last time that you remembered that God knows what's difficult, what's sad, what's breaking your heart, that he's watching you, not as an angry master ready to strike out in frustration, but just like that master who's thinking of you at a party, delights in you and loves you and wants to bring you the best hors d'oeuvres at the end of the night. Let's let that truth sink in this week as we seek to minimize the distractions in our life and instead turn our attention to what matters most. All right? Will you join me in prayer? Oh, Lord, we so easily find ourselves uh, distracted by so many things that call for our attention. So, Lord, we're asking now that you would make us more like those servants who do the hard work of keeping focus, that, God, we could put distraction in its place, that we could get rid of those things in our life that pull us every which way and instead direct our focus towards you and towards others and towards real presence with real people and not towards all these other little things that clamor for our time and our attention and our focus. And, God, we trust. We trust you when you say that doing that will bring great blessing. We trust you when you say that doing that will actually lead us to life that's better and fuller and richer and more joy-filled in the lives we're leading currently. And so, Lord, would you help us in that task? Would you lead us for that to that blessing? Will you help us become folks that are more fully attentive towards what matters most? We ask for your help in your son's powerful name. Amen.